Hello, this is a talk I gave that serves as an introduction to Dante. It was given by Zoom, and so the sound quality isn't completely ideal, but I hope doesn't interfere with the talk. Also, it refers to some images which, if you did want to see, can be found on my YouTube channel under the talk Dante's Divine Comedy and Spiritual Sight. I hope you enjoy it. It's wonderful to be doing this, particularly on Dante, particularly in this year, because as Caroline said, it's the 700th anniversary of the publication of The Paradise, the last of the trilogy, published in 1320. And then Dante died in 1321, just a year later. Um, so it feels like a significant year. I, I don't know whether the media is going to pick it up a bit more next year when, with Dante's death. Um, but part of the reason why I decided to kind of go for it this year was... Because the Divine Comedy was one of those texts that um, I can honestly say did change my life. Um, I was doing my training in psychotherapy, which of course means your own psychotherapy. I was sort of ready to pop um, uh, in that. And um, reading the Divine Comedy in a group actually with the Temenos Academy um, towards the end of that five year period um, was transformative it was absolutely tremendous and i realized that this is a text that however else you read it whether you read it as an amazing bit of poetry the foundational text of modern italian um, a key historical document however you read it you're missing on something if you don't read it as a spiritually transformative text it is inspired i believe and it will inspire you and it's very much that element that I'm going to try and draw out this evening. Um, this year I've been reading it again, I mean I've read it several times and I thought I'd do these both uh, audio podcasts and YouTube um, posts canto by canto. I'm up to Purgatorio 27 so we'll be getting to the end of Paradise sometime in September um, and uh, you know it, it, it is a struggle, it, it, you've got to wrestle with it, you need to give it time but that is what happens with anything that really shifts your consciousness, that doesn't just tell you what you kind of already know in a more fancy way, but actually really alters your perception. And if you go away this evening, just having a vague sense that that could be possible and you want to give the time to it, um, then that would be great for me. I feel very evangelical about it. And I feel we need it now. Um, you know, it's written 700 years ago. It was absolutely the vanguard of spiritual development at the time, and it still can do that for us now, I think. Um, you know, these spiritual texts have that timeless quality when they put us in touch with eternity. And that is ultimately, I hope, what the Divine Comedy can achieve. Now, in the chat column there, I've put um, a couple of recommendations of translations. Um, Probably the easiest one to get hold of is the Penguin Classics, which is probably going to be in most bookshops and certainly online. Um, it's really good, it's clear, it has enough notes but not too many notes. If you get into it a bit more, then you may want to borrow, get into the Hollanders translation, which is published by Anchor Books. Um, it's a bit faster, it's got a lot more notes, um, but it will you know, satisfy a lot of questions. Neither of those are as, as good as I would like on the spiritual side. Um, and if you wanted to get one book that might begin to open that up for you, apart from what I say tonight, then this is a bit of a classic. This is um, Helen Luke's book, Dark Wood to White Rose. Um, she was a Jungian analyst. She also has a lot of Dorothy L. Sayers translations of the text 
in her own text. Um, so if you'd like a kind of Jungian take on things to get you into something, that's a good one to get hold of as well. And that's just some suggestions. But I've been going through it for myself, so you might want to look at my own podcast and YouTubes too. Okay, now um, we build this very much as, um, you know, lots of knowledge or no knowledge of the Divine Comedy. And like great texts, if you start again from the beginning, you see something new. So that is absolutely no loss. Um, and moreover, it gives me a wonderful chance to share these brilliant images. So I thought for the first 20 minutes or so, um, I sort of take you through what happens. Then we'll have a break, as Caroline mentioned, for any kind of clarificatory questions, perhaps particularly at that stage, just to sort of unpack that a bit further. But then I'll return and ask, no, but what really happens? What is so transformative about this text? in the second half up to maybe about 8 30 or so see how it goes um, and then we'll have these breakout rooms which i hope will be a chance to sort of chew the cut a bit yourself before a final 15 minutes perhaps where we have a general questions uh, kind of section and um, that i hope will bring it together and get you launched in the divine comedy if you're not already okay so look sit back for the first period period and i'll show you 30 or so slides which take us through the Divine Comedy. So I hope now that you can see that. Um, this is one of Doré's images. Gustave Doré is one of the absolute classic illustrators of the Divine Comedy. And you may know that um, it begins with Dante midway through the journey of his life, waking up and finding himself in a dark wood. It is a midlife crisis. You know, he was quite a successful politician. He was well known as a poet already an innovative poet, not just um, you know, one of the poets of his times, breaking new ground. So life seemed to be going well. But as it were, he wakes up and realises that he's completely lost his way. He doesn't even know what path he's on. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's a bit of a timeless classic and still speaks to us now. Because in some ways, although we sort of feel we know what life's about, you know, and maybe many people would feel we've got much more of life than, say, the 14th century. But many, perhaps even exacerbated by what's happening in the lockdown now, are waking up and realising that they don't know what path they're on. Even in the church, perhaps, they don't know what path they're on. And Dante is an excellent way to try and engage with that. So he wakes up in the dark wood, and the first thing he sees, here's one of William Blake's brilliant images, um, is actually a mountain and it looks like the sun is rising behind the mountain and everything's going to be okay. All he needs to do is follow the sunlight, step up the mountain and actually he'll find his path again. Um, it's that moment in any spiritual journey where you think there must be a shortcut. If you've ever walked a labyrinth, it's the early bit of the labyrinth where you get taken almost to the centre and you think you're there and of course you're not. Um, and that is precisely what happens to Dante. Blake here depicts him in the red and he faced these three beasts. Um, you know, people reflect a lot on what the beast represents, but the, the short story is that they block his way. Um, and then he's joined by Virgil, who has been sent from heaven, so descending here, by Beatrice, Lucia and the Virgin Mary, three heavenly ladies. Now Beatrice, as you may well know, was the woman who early in his life Dante fell in love with in a kind of infatuated way and she became a kind of North Star throughout his life. 
around which he revolved in all his attempts to understand what love might mean. And the Divine Comedy is his kind of the culmination of that lifelong struggle. And again, it really is a struggle. Um, so uh, um, here he is now, um, feeling like all is lost, feeling he can only despair at this midpoint in his life. He's already put years into this. But even though the struggle is going to be long and hard, he's going to have to go through the inferno, through the purgatorio, before he even gets to the paradise. And perhaps I should stay right at the top, but it doesn't stop when he gets to paradise. One of the wonderful things about the Divine Comedy is there's, it only gets more dynamic when you get to the paradise. Nonetheless, his voice has been heard by Beatrice now in heaven. She is conferring with St. Lucia, probably Lucia because she's the saint of light and light is going to be so important. And of course, the Virgin Mary as well. And they send down Virgil, who very much inspired Dante in life and so can begin to guide him now. And they set off um, and they, they first, they, they, there's all, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of cutting to the chase a bit here. Um, every canto um, reflects on the moment. Um, it's not just as a there and then happens and then happens. It very much invites you to think, but what is this scene about? What is this situation about? We're already in a world where everything is absolutely pregnant with meaning. And in a way, all you have to do is attend to the now and it will lead you on. But to tell it as a bit of a story, um, they approach the gates of hell. And above, if you can just see again in Dore's image, the inscription there famously reads, Abandon hope, all you who enter here. But it also says other things. And in particular, it says a whole series of statements that begin with the phrase, I am. I am this. I am that. I am the other. And so if you've had any kind of Christian training or learning or know any Christian culture at all, this immediately makes you think of the I am statements that Jesus made about himself in John's gospel. And right from the get go, you think, look, I think I know what's happening. We're about to descend into hell, um, abandon hope. Yep, that makes sense. But right from the start, Dante feeds in these details. And I think one of the things that makes this a text to read for your spiritual transformation is to pay attention to the details because Dante wants you to start from what you know but he wants to upset what you know in order to take you further you know when cultures you might say and um, when churches get stagnant when they feel like maybe they're in decline it's not that they haven't got things to say but it's just that the things they're saying got a bit tired and so you have to start introducing ideas from the left and the right in order to try and find the new origin again, find the charisma, return to the source. And that's what the Divine Comedy is so brilliant at doing. And it happens even as they begin to descend into hell. Here is Botticelli's famous map of hell. So let me give you an overview now um, that I hope um, gives you some sense of where we're gonna go in this first part. Um, in the top left-hand corner there, I hope you can just see that box that's gone round it. This is kind of like um, uh, the, the bit before the Inferno proper. Um, there's actually quite a lot of souls there. They're individuals in life who just couldn't make their mind up to do anything very much. And so they get kind of hanging around um, in nowhere. They don't even get the chance to wrestle with the Inferno. Um, so that's the first group they meet. They enter hell, um, several things happen, but in a way, the next big place that they come across um, is Limbo. 
And Limbo is quite a nice place. Um, it has light, it has beautiful buildings, it has grass and trees. Um, there they meet a lot of very famous people, poets, philosophers, but who lived without knowing the Christian dispensation. And it sets up, again, something which you might expect from a medieval text, that if you don't know about Christianity, then you know, you're going to be somewhere in hell, even if in a rather nice place. But with Dante's trickery, it also makes you start asking questions because he learns from these people in limbo. He's walking with someone who was originally in limbo, Virgil. And so it's beginning to, at the same time, make you think, look, do I really know all that's going on here? Even as it seems that I might be seeing what I expect as we come across limbo. They then go through some of, some of the first circles of hell, um, which you can see above um, the text box that I've just added there, the longer one. And in a way, the, the first, well, the next really big thing that happens, apart from meeting quite a lot of souls on the way so far, is they come to the city of Dis. And um, you can see, I hope, there the, the castle um, and the turrets and the flames, which are all the devils on the top of the turrets. Um, and both the Inferno, Purgatorio and the Paradiso, actually, they're all broken up into roughly three chunks. Um, and as you pass through each boundary, um, there's a sense that you're going more deeply into whatever you're presented with, whatever, wherever you happen to be, whether it be the light of heaven or the darkness of hell. And so this represents a sort of phase change or a transition change. It's a bit of an initiation rite, even, I think, for Virgil and Dante, and it enables them to enter more deeply into what this inferno is all about. They then um, come through some more terraces until they come to an even bigger drop, which I hope you can see inside, inside this rectangular block now. If you just see the sort of sheer face there of the even deeper drop. And this takes them into the lowest, lowest reaches of hell, um, where there's another drop um, at the bottom, almost at the bottom, where some giants lower them down. Um, until eventually they come to um, the lowest part of hell. Um, it's depicted as if it were at the centre of the earth, where they um, see Lucifer and those who have so fallen away from God's light that they almost fall out of existence altogether. Um, I won't quite give the game away as to what happens when they meet Lucifer right now, um, but um, the, the bottom of hell, you might say, um, is depicted as the place that has almost dropped out of being altogether. It's, 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 people have got so trapped that they um, have, have you know, um, almost lost the sense of themselves, let alone the sense of God or anything else. So that's some sense of the, um, the inferno, I hope, as, a, as the journey. So let's look at some of these early stages um, now. Um, here is another Blake picture. This is Limbo. Um, as Blake depicts it. So I hope you can see that it's rather lovely. Um, in the bottom left-hand corner there, you can see some of the other great poets that they meet that have been Virgil's companions. Here is one of the first groups of sinners that they meet. Now, I immediately want to qualify that. That's the kind of quick way of saying it, and I'll probably say it more than once. But really, I think what you begin to see is that they're souls who have become trapped in the way that they live their lives. Um, it's not so much that what they did was morally wrong, it's that the way we live our life makes us more or less capable 
of what we can perceive and see of life. So these are lovers who um, became very involved in romantic stories of one sort or another. The famous couple they meet are Paolo and Francesca. Um, and they, as it were, became obsessed with romantic love. And it's like when they died, they weren't really able to experience anything else apart from this romantic life, except that now they see it in its full intensity and they get swirled around as Dante sees them by this love. And if you can see um, by the side of Virgil beneath um, the light there, um, Dante has actually, actually collapsed. Um, he was very involved with love and what it means in his life. And it's too much for him at this early stage. It's just, I think it's as if he sees himself here. Again, you know, just when he's stepping out, it feels like all is lost. Um, one of the great truths of, I think, any spiritual quest. They go through um, some more early terraces. Um, here's a particularly wonderful Blakeian image of uh, the wrathful and the slothful lying down. Um, you get an image, a sense here of one of the tricks, as it were, that Black Dante uses, the famous contrapasso, which is that when you're suffering, you're experiencing, um, if you like, most intently what you knew in life. And so the rageful really do get consumed by their wrath now um, and spend um, eternity, it seems at least, um, at blows with each other, whilst the slothful can't even get themselves off the ground. They're actually um, at the bottom of a riverbed in the inferno. Um, these souls are trapped, and that is what Dante is beginning to see as he descends into the inferno. You know, he's got to see it all, I think. The descent is as, as important as the ascent. This isn't just a question of, you know, God's judgment um, showing itself off, how it can curse and condemn individuals to the inferno. Already at this stage, by this phenomenon of the contrapasso, Dante is beginning to wonder, is this just what these souls are capable of? Have they trapped themselves? I think that's one of the things he's beginning to drive at in these early stages. There's more of that, but I want to jump now to um, the, um, the, the, the city of Dis. Um, Virgil, it turns out, has been here before. I won't tell you why he's been here before. Um, one of the lovely things to discover as you read. Um, but he thinks he knows how to open the gates of Dis, except he doesn't. And it's a huge, really big first crisis point for Virgil. Um, and they think again all is lost um, but luckily Dante has got his ladies watching in heaven um, Beatrice Lucia and the Virgin Mary and they send this wonderful angel who is the first um, sort of big angel to appear in the inferno um, angels you could do a whole study on the angels of the Divine Comedy um, they just get on with their task so this angel appears it opened the gates of disc doesn't even say hello to Dante and Virgil it tells the devils that it sees what fools you are, what idiots you are, thinking you've got some sort of power when you just lock yourself behind these gates of Dis. The gates open at the angel's command. Now, they go through a new phase of encounters with souls. There's several um, of these that go on now. I want to pick up on one because it might seem to be one that's particularly troubling um, to us now. Um, it's the wood of the suicides. And what happens with those who um, committed suicide in life um, is that they get hurled down to this zone of purgatory 
um, where they get turned into these living trees. But again, not is all as it seems. We meet plenty actually of other people who committed suicides in life, even those who were saved who um, had committed suicide. So it makes you think, what is this really about? What is Dante really driving at? Um, I'm going to leave that sort of as a bit of an open question, but I want to impress on you at this point that in some of the commentators, they'll tend to take you through the Divine Comedy in rather a sort of formulaic piecemeal way, like, okay, now the terrace of the suicides, or now the terrace of the wrathful, or now the terrace of this, now the terrace of that. Don't take that too much to heart. Keep observing what you actually see, what Dante and Virgil actually say, what these souls actually tell you, and the world starts to open up, even in this distress. Here's um, another image um, which I think Dante's doing something very different, very tremendous. It comes from a little bit lower down in hell. Um, they meet a chap called Bruno Latini, who you can just see there on the left. Um, he was a great inspiration for Dante in life. And Dante's very confused as to why he's in hell. Um, the commentators will tell you that this is the ring of the Sodomites. But when you read the cantos, sex is... It's maybe mentioned once in passing, and there's a whole lot more going on besides. And just on this very particular issue of homosexuality, which so troubles the church even to this day, when Dante gets into purgatory, he meets others, we presume, are sodomites. Um, they're on the same terrace um, as um, the, the heterosexual lovers, and they're saved. They're on their way to heaven. So even in the 14th century, Dante is doing something tremendous because I think he sees into the hearts of people and realizes that the symptoms aren't the point at all. Um, what matters is what's going on in your heart and what people do in life can easily distract you, can easily lead you astray. And the implication is that the church has got very much caught up in that. Um, it really doesn't understand very much what's going on. It's another theme that starts to unfold, I think, as you go through the Divine Comedy. Here's another wonderful character we meet. Um, Virgil starts talking about the old man of Crete. And this is a kind of mythological figure which Blake has depicted here. Um, I wanted just to mention it in passing because the old man of Crete is a figure that has a golden head and a silver chest, but terracotta legs, and he's starting to crumble by his right foot there. And I think what this signals um, is Dante isn't just interested in the individual and their journey. He's not just even interested in society and the church and what's happening to it. He's got a civilizational view. And I think what he's beginning to signal here is that whole civilizations can forget their gold and silver. They can forget their source, their origin, their inspiration. And they can start to lean on their crumbling terracotta feet. And to you know, throw a big thought in right now, I do wonder whether one of the reasons why the Divine Comedy can so inspire today is because we live in a culture that is rapidly, I think, forgetting its gold and silver and is leaning more and more on its terracotta feet. Um, and we need things like the Divine Comedy to help us with that. Anyway, there's a lot one can say about that, but that's one of the, that's the old man of Crete. If nothing else, just to give an indication of all the richness, all the unexpected stuff, that comes up as you make this journey. They come to another huge transition point 
and this is one of Botticelli's wonderful cartoons. And he's particularly wonderful because if you look at it, you see that Dante and Virgil are depicted several times in the image, and it gives you this sense of movement and dynamism. Um, you know, he was animating uh, hundreds of years um, ahead of his time, and they climb onto a terrific, terrific beast called Gerion, who lowers them down into the next stage of hell. Things are getting a whole lot worse. Um, we must mention a pope, because um, there's lots of popes in hell. Um, this is a pope who was a simoniac, who charged um, for blessing, you know, an early trader um, in, uh, in church's blessings. Um, he's upside down with his feet aflame, kind of mocking the flames that were supposed to dance on his head, signaling the Holy Spirit um, at his ordination. Here's another Botticelli that shows you another section of hell rather well. Um, it's known as Malabolge, um, where they go through several rounds and meet several different kinds of trapped souls being facing the, their torment in various kinds of ways. And it has these bridges that they walk over um, as they descend through this section of hell. It's quite a long chunk of the inferno. A huge amount is going on in it. Um, then they come to the final part and they meet these giants. You can see their backs there in Blake's wonderful images. And one of the giants lowers them down into the chilliest, darkest parts of the inferno, where finally they meet Lucifer. And in this, you know, one of the most gobsmacking revelations of the whole inferno, of the whole comedy, perhaps, it turns out that Lucifer is frozen in hell. He can barely move. His enormous wings just sort of beat a bit like a fish out of water whose mouth keeps going. Um, he's bare, not really even alive. Um, he's in this deep, not place almost of non-being. If it got any chillier down there, they would just vanish, they would just disappear. But in another amazing moment, they climb right onto Lucifer's body. And as they're climbing down towards his waist, suddenly Dante realizes that they're climbing up. They're beginning their ascent, even whilst they're on Lucifer's body. And again, it's a, an amazing depiction of a profound spiritual truth that when you thought you were descending, you were actually ascending, even if you didn't know it at the time. And I'll try and pick up that thought in some of the comments about why this is a spiritual transformative text. So they come to the second part, they come to um, the purgatory. It's a mountain um, and it has several terraces too. Um, the quick way of saying it is that on different levels, different kinds of problem are encountered. Um, it can be quite brutal, but all the souls now know that they have hope and they have a completely different relationship to themselves. They're seeing themselves, embracing themselves, particularly in their darkness because they know that's the only way to discover the light that exists all around them, but their preoccupation with themselves has eclipsed. So they climb steadily up Mount Purgatory. Here's some of the places they visit. Um, this is actually anti-purgatory. They wander around quite a lot to start with, sort of finding their bearings, meeting various souls, wondering quite how to get launched on this journey. Again, another profoundly um, uh, true, comment about the spiritual life. You can wander around for a long time, even if you kind of feel um, that things are going to go well, not quite sure what's happening. They meet another wonderful angel delivering souls to the seashore. 
um, wanted to show you that. And then one of the first really significant moments for Dante in the purgatory is he has a dream. And he dreams that he is, he dreams that he sees um, Jove as a great eagle snatching Ganymede um, in a kind of lustful abduction. And this canto um, features lots of allusions and direct stories of erotic desires, desire to possess, even abduct, even rape. It's pretty, um, he's full on Dante, you know, there's nothing that you would have thought of that he doesn't at least allude to. Um, and then he wakes up and Virgil tells him that actually something completely different was happening, that he was being carried by Lucia, the saint of light, up to a higher part of Mount Purgatory. She was kind of getting and going on his journey proper. And that question as to what erotic desire is really about is one I think that hangs over the whole Divine Comedy and again makes it absolutely the cutting edge of Christianity, um, which I'm going to return to in my second lot of thoughts. They come to the gateway of Purgatory proper. Um, a lot happens. Um, but they get let in by the angel there. And then they start up um, the terraces in purgatory where souls are facing um, their troubles. Um, but unlike in hell, not being trapped by them, but working them through, you might say, if you'll forgive a slightly psychotherapeutic way of putting it. Here are souls that are carrying great burdens um, that they loved in life, their pride kind of stuck to in life. And now they're having to um, see quite how much that cost in order that they can not just cut it off but they I think can own the whole richness of themselves in such a way that it can transmit and channel a whole lot more besides not as it were leave them thinking I've got it all I understand what's going on as pride can tell you um, angels often appear um, so I wanted to have another little image of an angel here um, often to tell them how to make the next bit of the ascent, as you can see Dante and Virgil moving up. And then they get close towards the top of Mount Purgatory and they meet a third figure who spends quite a lot of time with them. He's another poet called Statius. Right in the centre there you can see him with his hand up because it turns out that he has been saved actually. He's done his time in Purgatory. But what's so interesting is that he is a pagan poet and it raises this question which is becoming a bit pressing now because if you know anything about what happens at the end of purgatory, you'll know that Virgil suddenly disappears. And again, the standard question is, Virgil, no Christian, therefore condemned for all eternity in hell. But I think a lot's been happening for Virgil as he's been ascending too. And I try and draw this out in my own commentaries. And Statius signals that everything can happen. And that in a way is the whole point as well, I think, that with the right sight, you see that all things are possible with God, to sound like a bit of a preacher for a moment. They come to the final part of Purgatory, which is um, in a way where it all comes together for Dante. He has to walk through this fire um, that I think a bit like um, the alchemist's fire or a bit like the blacksmith's fire is about um, refining, purifying the metal of which he's made, if you like, um, in so that he's um, not because God cares about our sin that much, but so that he's really capable of bearing what he's going to see in paradise. And it turns out that what you can bear 
very much signals where you find yourself in paradise. Um, so this is the fire at the top of purgatory. And if you can see here in this illustration, they walk through the fire up the final staircase at the top and they reach what's known as the, the, the earthly Eden. Um, it's uh, the Eden now redeemed um, at the top of Mount Purgatory, the place where they kind of gather before launching off into paradise itself. Here, he finally meets face to face with Beatrice. She appears on this extraordinary procession. And again, just to kind of signal how extraordinary this is, um, first of all, it's pretty clear that Beatrice is in the place you'd expect to find Christ. Um, Christ is no longer the man who lived in Palestine. Christ is the divine Logos who has been incarnating busily, you might say, in all sorts of individuals right across time. If only we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. That's a bit of my spin on it, but I think that's what's going on. And Beatrice is ferocious towards Dante at this moment. Um, again, I'll leave it open what she actually says, but it just signals, I think, that, you know, paradise is bliss, but it's, it's real work too. It's joyful work, um, but it's a constant process of transformation to become more and more capable of the divine. If you can see hell where we came from and purgatory which you've clowned up, I like this diagram because it partly shows you how much more there is to go and they're going to ascend through various spheres of the planets which represent kind of different qualities, different character, different virtues but that means different capacities you might have to enable you to see new things. They then go through the sphere of the Vic stars into the prima mobile and eventually enter a whole new cosmos, the Imperium, um, which is where they finally come to face to face with the divine. Um, you know, it just goes to show you thought Inferno was quite a trip. Um, it's only just beginning when they get to the top of Mount Purgatory. Here's one of Botticelli's images. Um, I like this one because it shows you quite a lot of what happens as they go through particularly the spheres of the planets. Dante and Beatrice enter, it completely blinds and dazzles Beatrice and then his transformation continues and gradually he's able to see the details, he's able to understand the nuance of this place. And again, another profoundly spiritual truth I think, that it's not about more and more and more ecstatic, exalted peak experience, it's precisely the opposite in a way, going more and more and more into the details, into the nuance and in that descent my goodness, worlds open up before you. That is, I think, part of the dynamic that goes on in the paradise. They meet various sorts. They have discussions, particularly with figures like Thomas Aquinas. They meet Dominic and St. Francis. Remember, Thomas Aquinas, Dominic and Francis were right at the vanguard of that period of medieval Christianity, breaking into new ideas, incorporating what Aristotle had written, the pagan philosopher Aristotle. It was a tremendous time of Christian innovation, which I think is one of the reasons why it can inspire us now. Um, you know, nothing is off the table um, in paradise. And that should be a message for us now, I think, particularly as we live in a plural world. It's all God's work at the end of the day. So why wouldn't we expect to read Aristotle if you're in Dante's time and maybe all sorts of other people um, in our time now as well? Um, one of the central Christian doctrines which gets challenged in paradise is the significance of the cross, where essentially Dante realises that the cross 
was just for humans benefit. This is a bit my spin on it again, but it's almost like God was saying, look, what's it going to take? They don't need the cross. There's nothing necessary about the cross. I certainly don't need it. But kind of came to the conclusion that the shock of the cross was the only thing that might begin to launch people into a new perception of things. So the cross, you'll notice, is not at the top of paradise at all. It's not even in the Imperium. It's fairly low down. It's an initiation or a transitional path, Dante argues. Now, whether you buy that or not, at least be prepared for really challenging ideas um, for mainstream Christianity that open up a whole lot more. Here's another moment where tremendous things happen. Um, a bit a bit higher up, um, they come across this wonderful eagle form made of myriad dancing souls, and they see particularly a bunch of souls um, in the eagle's eye, and which Quercia here is depicted as standing on the eagle's head and wings. And again, it's a mix of pagans, it's a mix of Christians. Um, there's a sense of tremendous unity in this um, part of hell, in this part of paradise, um, but it's a unity born of diversity. It's like each and every soul has their individuality, but it's because they're so fully themselves that they're part of the paradisal orchestra. And again, another really important truth that Dante begins to get hold of, that unity is found in diversity, in fact, because everybody has become more and more and more themselves as individuals, which actually means they're more and more and more part of the dance of the divine. They reach another transition point. This is where they're passing through the fixed stars. Um, they're going into the Imperium in Dore's wonderful image. It's like a ladder. Um, and um, they come across um, um, particularly the saints, James, John and Peter. Um, it's a different phase in Dante's journey. Um, they're in the, the constellations here. If you can just see Dante, uh, Blake here has put the fixed stars sort of in the background there. Um, there's a lot of discussion. It's quite an intellectual part of the journey. Um, and I think one of the things which Dante wants to do is combine the erotic and the, the intellectual, so that our passion and desire, as it were, can inspire new perception, new sight. I might pick that up in the second half. Um, finally, they come to um, the final transition phrase um, where they enter the Imperium proper. It's like a whole new cosmos, a whole um, section altogether, which Doré is depicted here. Um, they come across here, particularly the divine intelligences. These are the different type of angels. Um, in Blake's wonderful depiction here, if you can see, so they look younger at the bottom and gradually get older as they rise to the top. I think what that signals is that they're closer and closer to the divine origin. Um, you know, if you know anything about angelology, you'll know that the cherubim and seraphim um, are closest to God. They most keenly share the divine um, nature. Um, and um, so Dante and uh, Beatrice um, travel through these different um, capacities for knowing God, even in paradise. And eventually they come to the beatific vision right at the end. It's depicted as a white rose with a bright light right in the centre with myriad souls and angels in a constant dance, constant dynamism. Um, you know, Dante's genius as a poet is that, as some commentators will tell you, he describes hypercubes, hyperspheres. Um, shapes that you can't even draw are part of his divine image that he sees here. 
Um, he's completely lifted out of himself and yet just about manages to find the words to communicate something of that to us at the pinnacle of the comedy. So that is what happens on the journey. And I thought what we could do perhaps now um, is just maybe have like a, um, a five minute, just to ask me any kind of clarificatory questions, particularly, um, uh, just to sort of um, the what happens, you know, I thought that this happened perhaps, or I'd heard that, just if there were anything really on your mind after that, before I just say a little bit more about the spiritual side of it, which I've been alluding to, um, and then we'll have the breakout rooms to sort of just tease things out a little bit further. But if there were any um, immediate questions um, that would just help us tease out a little bit more the kind of what happens, that would be very helpful now. Um, do you agree with commentators who say that the souls in Inferno have chosen to be there because they decided not to repent before they died? I mean, that certainly is said. Again, I think, you know, you can find plenty of examples um, where Virgil might say, you know, um, they didn't repent. And you meet circles in purgatory where there are late penitents, so-called. Um, I think that this is the kind of 101. This is Dante beginning where he thought his readers might be, but immediately it starts to unravel. It doesn't really make sense. Um, you start to realize that, say, the late penitents, the problem was that they put off their spiritual undertakings to the last minute. Now, you know, if they were lucky enough, as it were, um, in the formulaic doctrinal sense, they kind of just got a, a repentance in there at the past, at the last. But what they're really living in purgatory is their whole lives, which did everything that was important at the last minute. They got confused about what was important, perhaps. Um, so, again, I think the Divine Comedy pulls you into the subtlety, the inner story of all these souls, um, where the kind of 101, you might even say the creedal understanding, is just the starting point, um, but it's certainly not the end point. Um, and to what extent do you think that the Divine Comedy has influenced popular perception of religion and spaces such as heaven and hell? Uh, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, in some ways, you know, your thoughts on that would be um, as good as mine. Um, I did watch the uh, film adaptation of Dan Brown's Inferno, um, just because I thought I should. Um, I mean, it's really well made, um, but it's not very deep. Um, uh, so it certainly has rippled. Um, I mean, one of my sadnesses really, and part of why I um, wanted to put more time into this than just, um, you know, my own sort of private journey and try and communicate something of it is because, I don't know, for example, I remember listening to the In Our Time with Melvin Bragg on Radio 4 about the Divine Comedy. And they basically said, look, we don't understand paradise. We don't believe in purgatory. Let's just look at the inferno. And I thought that is so telling of our times that we understand the tragedy, we understand the suffering, we understand the sense of feeling trapped. And we've almost lost the sense of what transformation might be about, let alone what divine life might be about. And I think that's quite widespread. I feel it as much when I walk into churches um, as anywhere else. Um, and so the Divine Comedy has influenced us, but sadly you know often because of the suffering um, rather than because of the liberation 
Um, can you tell us, uh, is Dante affiliated with a particular religion or spiritual, spiritual practice? And then how do Dante's visions of the cycles and journeys of the soul sit with non-Christian belief systems? Yeah, brilliant question. I mean, he's, he's a medieval Christian. Um, so that is his kind of bread and butter. Uh, he lives pretty soon after Islamic thought is starting to flood through Europe, as well as ancient Greek thought, particularly the works of Aristotle. Um, this is very much in the mix of medieval Christianity. It causes huge fights, um, books get banned, all that stuff you expect, um, but it re re uh, uh, rejuvenates Christianity as well. And in fact, the notion of subtlety in the afterlife, you know, the different terraces, the different levels, probably comes from Islam that had previously developed this uh, much more substantially than had been the case in Christianity. Um, and although there are very difficult moments, particularly in the Inferno, um, around particularly Christian-Muslim relations, um, again, it turns out that there's a whole lot more going on than, uh, than meets the eye. So I think that whilst this is a particular story from a particular time and place, and it's probably going to speak more naturally to those who at least have some sort of either classical or Christian awareness, sense of things. It's like the, it's this spiritual truth again, that it's actually the particular that takes you to the universal. It's not the general that takes you to the divine. It's when you go more and more and more into ultimately your story, your sense, but probably through a particular tradition that it opens out um, into um, the all. Fabulous. I think just a couple of quick questions. Um, finally, uh, someone's asked, what's the story on Blake and Dante? Obviously, a lot of those beautiful images from Blake, they obviously spoke to him. Um, can you tell us more about that relationship? Yeah, um, so Blake was actually working on his Dante illustrations as he was dying. Um, some of his followers uh, have recorded in their diaries that they went to see Blake in bed, you know, what that was going to become his deathbed, and he was working on um, illustrations for Divine Comedy. Um, he didn't finish them. There's quite a lot missing, particularly in the Purgatory and in the Paradise. Um, the person who taught me, William Blake, she always used to say that um, uh, Dante, Blake realised his time was short and so needed to work out his own salvation, as it were, by drawing these images and wrestling with Dante's texts. He needed to prepare himself as much as he possibly could for divine sight, knowing that he was about to um, go there. Um, but um, they, ha they have their tussle, they don't completely follow each other, but that's fine, because I think Dante's very much saying, work this out for yourself. Um, you know, um, Blake particularly didn't like the idea of uh, the traditional account of the fall at all in Christianity. So he brings in extra elements in his illustrations. Um, but it, it creates a sense of a living text, um, which is so wonderful. And you just feel that in the vitality of Blake's drawings. And just moving back to the conversations that we were having about um, his companions, someone has asked, are Virgil and Beatrice possibly aspects of Dante himself? Yeah, I mean, certainly um, Dante starts to realise that he's encountering aspects of himself as he encounters the various souls. Um, and again, you, if you think about it, you can only really encounter someone as opposed to like just sort of bump into them on the street. If there's a part of you 
that has something that they're carrying. Then you can really know them in this more intimate sense. Um, it doesn't have to be the whole of who you are, um, but some sympathy, some empathy um, is crucial to feeling you're really meeting others. Um, and so certainly um, he does that. Sometimes he's actually okay about meeting, you know, so for example, I don't think um, uh, Dante really has a problem with what we might call gluttony. Um, when he meets the souls who are wrestling with consuming the wrong things in life. Um, he doesn't have, really have a problem with that. Um, so it's quite easy for him to be on that terrace. When he encounters the various people that have devoted their lives to love in its various forms, he collapses, he's frightened, he struggles. You know, that is a much more terrifying part of himself um, that he really has to work. And then finally, uh one person obviously is also a psychotherapist and is wondering how a, a psychotherapist's role uh, might be influenced by uh, this spiritual view of the Divine Comedy. And maybe that leads us neatly into your next section. Yeah. Well, what we might do actually is I'm more or less covered what I was going to say because of these wonderful questions. So we might actually go into the breakout groups for sort of a few minutes and then come back. Um, and I could say a little bit more or have further questions at the end. But just to answer that, um, I mean, I had quite a traditional psychoanalysis. I went many times a week, lay on a couch, um, and it was brilliant for opening up the darkness with which I was wrestling. Put it like that. Um, but the Divine Comedy came my way at just the right time to start to work out what was going to happen next in a way, how I was going to see other things, see um, something of the light, um, but in different ways. Um, and so now that I am a psychotherapist, I always bear that in mind to keep listening for where the light is starting to show through. Um, having learned, particularly from the Divine Comedy, that, as I've said a few times now, you know, the descent and the ascent, it turns out are actually part and parcel of the same dynamic. Because when you descend and see, you also start to see around, you start to see more. And so as a psychotherapist, um, it's, it's really helped me to be alert to trying to see the more as, to well, as well as what is causing such suffering or distress, um, you know, right there in the room. A bit of a discussion. If anybody had any sort of follow up questions as a result of those group discussions, um, please do feel free to pop those in the chat and I'll ask um, Mark on your behalf. Um, haven't had any immediately, which is fine. Oh, no, we've got some here. So um, one group was discussing whether or not there are direct or indirect parallels between Dante and the Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, I mean, I think there are. Um, it's from a different time. Um, you know, it's a few hundred years after. Um, I think it's more allegorical. Um, you know, the slough of despond and all that. Um, it's, uh, it's, you can, um, as it were, pick up a bit in the story and decode it, if you like, um, which is more like an allegory. Whereas I think Dante, um, certainly Dante presents it as if it happened. I mean, I actually think it did happen. I don't think it happened like he went on a big trip, but I think over a period of time, he received various um, 
revelations, if you like, that he then worked with his own poetic genius. Uh, but I think that's what divine revelation is like. It doesn't just sort of brain dump on you because God doesn't really want robots, I don't think. God wants living souls who can share this joy. Um, so, I mean, and I'm not, not just saying this, Dante, several points in the Divine Comedy, addre directly addresses his readers and say, says things like, reader, you're not going to believe this, but this is what happened next. I mean, he puts it more beautifully than that. But nonetheless, um, yeah, so I think that's one of the differences. This is a, um, this really is a journey, I think, um, into these domains, uh, not just a kind of allegory that helps you understand the journey of life. Brilliant. Um, one person's asked, do the souls in the Divine Comedy in any sense prepare to return to the earth in a new incarnation? Yeah, the quick answer is no. Um, there's no sense of uh, reincarnation. The only hint, this is getting a bit inside baseball now, but once one soul does appear in two places. Um, now, you know, some commentators said that Dante made a mistake. Um, others say maybe this is some sort of bilocation. Um, I guess, I bet Dante realised he'd done that. I mean, you know, he worked on this for years. Um, and maybe he's just nudging to even all that he has suggested, all that he has seen, the, the farthest reach and extent of what he can grasp and express to us, there's more. Um, and maybe that more is something which we pick up now, 700 years later. Um, did Dante come to the attention of the Inquisition? Yeah, I think um, the book was banned. I can't remember all the details here, so don't take me um, just at face value. But yeah, he got into trouble um, and um, the church was pretty wary of it. I mean, you know, unsurprisingly, um, some of the most um, colourful characters are popes burning in hell. And I think I'm right in saying that the last thing that the Virgin Mary says in heaven is cursing a pope. It can happen even in heaven. Um, so this is was too hot to handle for certainly um, quite substantial chunks, I think, of church history. And is the journey that Dante describes the journey for all souls, or do some have a slightly different journey? So just hoping I've picked up the question properly. Um, I think this is a, a dynamic text. Um, it, it changes even as you engage with it, which is why you can read it again and again and again. Um, and I think that in a way, as much as a sort of, you know, a static text can, it gives you the sense that all the journeys that you meet here or here or here are themselves on a journey. Um, and um, so as it were, you know, if you went back now, they'd all be in different places, if you like. Um, it, it's, it, the whole thing is dynamic and again another thing I like about it is that when you get to heaven it's not just blissing out the dance gets more and more sophisticated and interesting and nuanced and collaborative and the dynamism just keeps on going and I think one final question um, if these are divine revelations uh, why does Dante not have a higher status in the church? Why does he not receive more recognition? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a bit who do you ask? Um, amongst mystics, I think he's pretty high up. Um, 
you know, I, I guess that, you know, we are all on different journeys and, and that is absolutely validated by the divine comedy um, because, you know, I think, so far as I can tell, God wants us as ourselves, um, not just as we are now, transformed, fully actualized, um, but to share this divine outpouring. Um, you know, so different souls are going to be capable of different things at different times. So the divine comedy is not going to be for everybody, put it like that. Um, but that is where it's built into the divine comedy. Um, but I mean, I think it is fairly widely recognized as maybe even like in the top three great literary products of the Christian tradition, say. Um, you know, if you just put the Bible to one side. Um, so it's, it's pretty well adulated, but um, I think that when you get into it, you start to realize, um, you know, it's up there in the, in the Premier League. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, I don't think we've got time for any more questions, but do, um, if you'd like to, to give us some of your sort of final remarks. Yeah, maybe the only thing that I was going to mention that haven't, hasn't been covered off, at least in passing, um, is how time changes through the Divine Comedy. This perhaps is connected to the thought about how it's not just a literal ascent into Earth. Um, Basically, in the Inferno, you start to realise that the souls are obsessed with the past and the future, and it locks them in place. Um, they're either obsessed with what happened or what's going to happen, um, maybe to their enemies or to themselves, as it were, at, the, at, the, at Judgment Day. Um, and Dante starts to realise that if you just fixate on the past or future, nothing changes, because it's only in the present that things change. And then when they get into the purgatory, um, there's a great sense of day and night, and Dante has these dreams and so on, but everybody is focused on what the present means. And Virgil several times says to Dante, look, don't get distracted. What's happening right here, right now? What does it mean? What's changing in you as a result? Um, so that I think is why the present so matters. You know, again, many spiritual um, texts would tell you this, and because it's here and now that things change and actually it's here and now that everything you need to make the next change can be found as well and then when they get into paradise um, time becomes diaphanous um, uh, maybe i'll leave um, you know leave that as a kind of invitation to really get going on these texts if you possibly can um, but broadly speaking they do enter eternity and they have a sense of the past and the present and the future, but they're not confined to the past, the present and the future. Everything can move. Um, even the souls that Dante meets in the lowest parts of hell, he says to them, but aren't you a bit unhappy? Because you're in the sphere of the moon when you could be in the Imperium. Um, and the souls say, oh no, we're everywhere, in fact. And that is part of what Dante wrestles with in heaven. Um, that um, even the bit of you that gives you your individuality in heaven connects you to everything else as well. And that part of that is the diaphanous experience of time. You know, if, if being drops away as you descend into the inferno, time starts to transform into the eternal as you rise into the paradise. And that is part of what I think we'll be able to navigate um, when we get there. Maybe that's a good point to finish.
Well, thank you so much, Mark. Um, somebody has uh, mentioned that Dante is in fact compulsory reading for Italian 15 and 16 year olds. Um, and as we've all found out this evening, uh, even if we didn't know it beforehand, it's obviously this incredible transformative text and we are so grateful to you for leading us in a, a brief exploration of that. Um, a huge thank you to everybody who's joined us this evening. I know that uh, Zoom is not everybody's preferred method of communication um, and for a lot of you it will be a step into the unknown. So I am hugely grateful to you all for joining us. Uh, again, thank you massively to Mark um, for his, uh, his talk this evening. I will be sending out um, an online feedback form and an email to you all. Um, and I will include in that email a link to Mark's podcasts so that you can find out more about um, the Divine Comedy. Um, we've got another few uh, events coming up before the end of the summer. On the 1st of July, we'll be looking at the Magna Carta and its enduring significance. Uh, then on the 11th of July, we're doing an introduction to the language of Old English uh, for a morning's introduction. Uh, and finally, on the 15th of July, we've got to talk on when did the Middle Ages end? So if you are interested in any of those, please head over to our web pages 